As said before we started, it is just wonderful to be together this morning, to see your faces, to sing together. I want to take you to the... Oh, before I start, I just want to remind you, um, got little cards on your, ta- on your chair. If you are new today, we've got the cards back. If you're new today, do fill that out. Uh, get connected with the church family. We'd love to... Um, well, we'll get in contact with you, invite you to join a life group, that kind of thing. So um, do, do fill those out if you're new and you'd like to get, find out more about the church. Um, if you could turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. In a moment, I'm going to ask Nick to come up and read it to us. But what I want to do is just picture the scene. The people of Israel have just crossed through the Red Sea. A miraculous moment in their lives as they were, they were trapped. They were in jeopardy. The, the Egyptian army with the chariots and the riders and the and, you know, famed army chasing them down. And the sea is in front of them and they are facing death. But the Lord miraculously makes a way. They come through the Red Sea. And we find them now on the shore of the sea. Thousands of thousands of Israelites. If you were in that gathering, you would you wouldn't kind of be able to see the end of that. Just from from as far as you can see, there are people arrayed on the seashore. And this is Exodus 15. What are they doing? They are singing. They are chanting. You've got to imagine like a a, a huge pop concert, or possibly a, a actually probably I think more. Appropriate is to imagine a kind of large football stadium with thousands of fans. This is the era before amplified music. So how much they're really holding a tune together, I don't know. But they are chanting. They are delighted. They are celebrating the victory of God. They're celebrating four centuries of slavery. And finally, they've been brought out. They have freedom. And what's more, their enemies, who in a sense their very existence was a, not just a reminder of their life in slavery, but actually a threat that they would go back to that. Pharaoh was pursuing them to bring them back into slavery. No, they're celebrating. Their enemies have been destroyed. They are celebrating the victory of God. You've got to imagine this great raucous crowd rejoicing. So, Nick, why don't you come up and read it to us? Exodus 15, 1, verse 1 to 21. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the, in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, 
I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in. And plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea... The Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The, Lord, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Today I want to unpack why these people were singing. I want to get into the, the essence of what's going on in this song. But really I want to do that because I have a bigger purpose in mind. We like the people of Israel, are the people who sing. This is the very kind of essence of who we are as the people of God. And what I want to, in a sense, say is, why do we sing? Why do the people of God sing? Because what you'll see here in this passage, all the way through the Bible, right to the end of the book of Revelation, is that they're establishing a pattern, a paradigm, that the people of God sing. So why do they do that? Because on first sight, if you're new here and you're not a Christian, you come in to a worship gathering like this, you think, what is going on? Like, I, I, I got married, I'm, I'm not from a Christian family, and we had a, a lovely kind of Christian worship ceremony, and I have a Jewish family and other, uh, non, lots of non-Christian family members, and we go back and look at our wedding photos, and I can just see in my family's faces, like, what is going on? 
<laughs> like, what have we been invited to? Like, you know, like, like, are we meant to be singing here? What, why is everyone so joyful, clapping their hands? Um, there's a sense to which to the outsider, the Christian worship will look a little bit unusual. Some people will even say, let's get rid of worship so we can accommodate the outsider. To, to me, that's getting it all wrong. It says, no, to the very heart of who we are as the people of God, we sing, we worship. It's not some nice to have or just a trivial addition. Many of you probably imagine it has, in a sense, is a bit like that. It's not really essential to our gatherings. So I want to show you that to worship, to sing our worship, is intrinsic to who we are as the people of God. It's not some superfluous element. It's not fluff that you just need to get past in order to get to the real thing, the, the sermon. It's not even emotionalism. Like, you know, some people might say, well, it's just, isn't it kind of manipulating your emotions? No, it's a, it's a genuine outworking, outpouring of the emotions the, uh, that we respond to the reality of who God is. I suspect many of you will feel worship this morning a little bit like uh, you're greeting an old friend. You know when you haven't seen someone for a long time, and then you see them, and your first thought is, I've missed you. You felt that you missed them, but you didn't really consciously feel it. And then when you see them again, and you're laughing together, and you enjoy you think, I have missed you. And I suspect as we are singing again together, as we're hearing everyone's voices together, we will feel like we are greeting an old friend. Why does it feel so sweet to us? Why does it matter so much? That's what I want to answer for us this morning. First thing you've got to see is that worship is essential to the identity of the people of God. And this Exodus 15 moment is the beginning of that stream that goes through the history of the people of God. You see it in the Old Testament. You see um, in 2 Samuel when the Ark of the Covenant is brought in. David is dancing before the... uh, says. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod, and David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark to the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. That atmosphere of worship and joyful celebration, it goes through all the way through the history of the people of Israel. Uh, even in two chronicles, the uh, king Jehoshaphat um, is kind of doing a number of different uh, reforms that, to bring the people of God back to their purpose to worship the living God. And in it, he establishes uh, people to go before the army to sing on their way into battle. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. They're singing as they go into battle. They're remembering his promises. In a sense, it's a recapitulation of the very scene we're talking about. You see, all the way through the book of Psalms, I read from Psalm 40, a new song in our, ma- in our, in our mouth. Uh, the, Psalm 96, I quoted it in a WhatsApp message to the church this morning. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. When we looked at the Psalms of Ascent, Andrew described how they could be kind of singing as they walk up to Jerusalem together. Singing is absolutely threaded in to the people of Israel. Then we see it in the New Testament, right at the beginning of the Gospels, Luke's Gospel is kind of like a big song that everyone is joining in with. In Luke chapter 2, you've got the angels singing to the shepherds, telling of the delight of the birth of the Messiah. It's um, It's incredible. Luke chapter 2. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
singing a great song. And in doing so, you see in the book of Luke, then Mary joins in with a song. Mary's song in response to the angel's visitation. Zechariah's song in response to the knowledge that Messiah's coming. Everyone is singing. Everyone is delighted to rejoicing in the arrival of the Messiah. And then we see it and the rest continues on in the New Testament. Instructions to God's people to sing. The book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians. He instructs the people of God to sing. Let me read it to you, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The, the singing becomes a way that the people of God are shaped and formed in the New Testament. We see it in the early church. Uh, one Roman uh, governor writes back to the, uh, the, the emperor Pliny to Trajan. And what does he complain? How does he describe these Christians? They sing to Christ as their God. They sing to Christ as their God. That is their calling card. They sing. You see it then two millennia forth following the early church, new forms of music, 6th century Gregorian chants, 18th century uh, Isaac Watts hymns, modern worship music in the 20th century, creativity boiling over, bubbling over from the people of God throughout the centuries as they sing to God's glory and celebrate his goodness. But in a sense, it all comes to completion in the book of Revelation. It all comes to completion with a recapitulation of this very scene. It says, and they sing the song of Moses. This is at the moment of judgment, saying that when we sing, we are, in a sense, tasting. We're tasting a foretaste of heaven. And he describes them like this. He says, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Just before that, it describes them being next to a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. See, do you hear the resonance of this scene in the book of Exodus 15? In Exodus 15, we have a people of God on the seashore declaring God's praise, declaring his victory. In the book of Revelation, we have the same thing. The people of God on the shore of this sea of glass declaring God's victory. And all the way through, in the the intervening centuries, hundreds, thousands of years, the people of God are known by singing in worship. But actually, I'd go even further than that and say singing is intrinsic to humanity. One psychologist said it's a a biological human function like language. One poet called singing the universal language of our species. Think for a moment. It would be hard to imagine any culture throughout history without lullabies or without anthems or poetry or religious hymns. It may look very different. The form may be different. But actually, anthropologists will will tell you that singing is is a universal in cultures, often used to accompany the the most significant moments of people's uh, life transitions, weddings, funerals, births. Uh, It's used to convey the kind of dominating cultural narratives. If you're a Brit, that's probably football's coming home, something like that. There are these cult... Singing gives a level of significance to something. Singing is part of the way that human beings inherently want to establish certain things as sacred. 
It's, by, it's behind some of the most transcendent moments. People would say in our culture, going to that gig, going to that stadium and being part of the crowd who are singing to the sports, the, the sports fans. Singing accompanies the most significant moments in our culture. Even, it's intrinsic, you can see it from the beginning and end of life. Babies, before they can talk and have a conversation with you, can sometimes sing in terms of like following the kind of make a sound towards the melody and, and dance before they can even, dancing away in their cot before they can even walk. See, the same is true at the end of life. Sometimes people with dementia, my grandmother had dementia before she died, in her home there would be a moment where uh, they would get out the songs and you'd see people with very late stage dementia who perhaps couldn't even remember their name, they were singing, as they sang the song of their youth, they started singing them again. Singing is intrinsic to humanity. Why? Because I would argue, at least part of that is we were made to worship. If we're Christians, we believe that. More than that, we were made to sing. We were made to sing worship. It's an intrinsic part of who we are. But actually, in a sense, what we're talking about today is not just singing. Everything that's significant about worship is significant because it points to a theme of the Christian life. In worship, we celebrate the victory of God. Actually, we do that because we want our whole lives to be an outworking in response to the fact that Christ has won his victory and planted his flag on our lives. In worship, when we sing, we, we worship God. We sing praises to him. Why? Because we want our whole lives to be an act of worship. You'll be, you, sometimes you go to some churches and they'll say, don't, um, we don't call this worship, we call it singing. Because all of life is worship. But that's to miss the point entirely. It's meant to be a catalyst. It's meant to be a way that as we worship God together, as we re-speak to our hearts and as we project our voices in worship, it becomes a kind of hot center that fuels the rest of our lives. That Actually, we want that worship to be worked out in every part of our lives. So the, the, the dominating themes, whether it be celebrating the victory of God, whether it be glorifying him, and worshipping him, celebrating his majesty, whether it be about um, boasting of his victory and fortifying ourselves with strength, or even whether it be about unifying ourselves together, the, the dominating themes of worship that we're going to see in this passage are the dominating themes of the Christian life. So I want to give you four very quick windows into worship from these people. And I want to see what are they doing and why, how that is what we're doing when we sing, and ultimately how that is a picture of the Christian life. So first of all then, celebrating the victory. You've got to see this in this passage. Exodus chapter 15, it is one great victory anthem, one great celebration of victory. You know, you can see it in, uh, in verse 4 to 10 particularly. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and the chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. It's, it's somewhat gratuitous. It's somewhat unnecessary. It goes on for six verses, detailing over and over again. It's like the highlights reel of a match. It's like watching Match of the Day, if you're a Brit and you like football. It's those moments where you relive the story, where you relive the victory. Any victorious army, any victorious team, as they, as they walk away from the battlefield or the, the place of conquest, they are, if they've won, if they're victorious, they'll no longer be celebrating that. Remember, did you see that shot? Did you see that moment in the battle where, we, where things turned and we won. And that is what the people of Israel are doing here. They're remembering the miraculous victory. Verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. They're remembering that the Lord's breath bro- opened the seas, miraculously piled the seas up either side so they could walk through and come through to the shore that they are now singing on. 
Or they're reliving the humiliation of Pharaoh who said in his heart, I will divide my spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. So that murderous, enslaving desire that, that Pharaoh was driven with. But no, they remember what happened next. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. They are celebrating that the Lord has humiliated the one who sought to kill them and enslave them. This is what it means to be the people of God. Worship is celebrating the victory of God. And we as Christians have even more to celebrate because we celebrate the cross of Christ. Christ's death on the cross is a moment of victory. Christus victor, Christ the victorious one. On the cross, we celebrate that Christ triumphed over sin, that he destroyed the enslaving power of sin. So if you're a Christian, you will still battle with sin, but Christ has had his victory in your life such that you will not be controlled by sin. You are no longer slaves to sin. It need not control you. You can, of course, enter back into slavery, but it says, no, you are free men and women now, no longer controlled by sin. Say Christ triumphed over death. On the cross, on the res- with the resurrection, as he proved the emptiness of death that sought to destroy him. And he began a victory over death that we will experience when we come to worship him and to celebrate him for eternity. He did put an end to the fear of death, that great cloud that looms on the horizon that makes everything just feel a little bit darker. The great albatross that flies over our heads, the, the reality that stalks our land and ultimately makes life feel a little bit uncomfortable. The great writer Tolstoy, in his 50s, he'd achieved great things and um, had, had novels and was at the very top of Russian society. And yet in his 50s, he came to a moment where he said, my life is worthless because of death, because one day I will die and all of this will in one sense be meaningless. He was liberated. He became a Christian. He was liberated from the fear of death. So we too, as Christians, live no longer worrying about the end of our days. Sure, we recognize death as a painful thing, but we're no longer consumed by the health obsession of our culture, no longer uh, consumed by that idea, you only live once, so I've got to destroy it and absolutely beat everyone because I've got one life to live. There's some Christian version of that, perhaps, but still, we are not controlled by the fear of death. We've been liberated from that. We've liberated from the great evil of shame that would tell us we're dirty. It says, no, we've been given robes of righteousness. And even from Satan, we know we'll experience his accusations and his temptations in this life. But one day, we will be in those Revelation 15 people singing about how Satan has been thrown down and removed from our lives, removed from this world. The Christian life begins by remembering the victory of Christ in our lives, remembering that he has established his ownership in our lives, remembering that we have this new liberty, this new freedom, and as such we seek to live in that freedom, in that liberty, and display the victory of Christ. But that victory should also be a source of great joy, a source of great abiding joy. We sing because we found something greater a new father whose love is certain, a new father who, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, and we are encounter that love that will never run dry, that even if we failed, even if we've run away from him and you know, done whatever else it is, he says, no, I'm, I, you are my people, I love you, and I'm committed to you. A love that will be never removed. We've experienced the joy of forgiveness, of knowing that our deeds, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. 
our shame, all that, that sense of dirtiness, that sense of people, I don't really want people to look at me, that sense of I don't really belong here, that sense which just, for some of us, is really strong. It says, no, you've been liberated from that. You have a, you, 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 you know, the, the shamed have become cleansed by the blood of Christ. And so we walk in a new freedom, a new joy. What I want you to see is that this, uh, this joy, actually, in a sense, there are all sorts of counterfeit joys in our culture that point to the human longing for joy. You saw this actually in the first century. Larry Hurtado wrote a book about um, the worship practices of the early church. And in it, he describes how almost all the other religious cults at the time, all the temples, actually were really means of finding a level of transcendent joy. You went to the temple, you had a mystical experience. There was incense and cultic prostitutes and, and perhaps some music. Or there, was, there was all sorts of ways that they were trying to find a sense of transcendence. And then he compares that with the Christians and says, actually, they looked rather humble in comparison. They were just a bunch of poor people, probably, many, many of them not very well off, in a, in a Roman person's house, 20 of them in a living room, and they're singing. They don't, they don't have temple prostitutes and incense and all the other paraphernalia, and yet they have a true and lasting joy. Why? Because the joy they have comes from a bigger and better story. They can't, they're not escaping the world. Think about all the ways that the modern equivalents of those kind of religious cults, those moments of transcendent joy that our culture pursues. Not, not wrong, but you know, that football stadium, thousands of fans adulating at that football match or that, um, mo- in that rock concert or pop concert where you're watching that gig and there's, there's a sense of transcendent joy that people are pursuing and may even experience, but it doesn't last. It doesn't last because it's not built on a permanent story. It's built on escapism. It's built on removing yourself and trying to pull yourself away from reality for a moment to enjoy this transcendent joy. Whereas Christian worship is the very opposite of that. It's about immersing yourself in reality. Rather than distracting yourself away from reality, Christian worship is about remembering the true story that defines your life. It's the very opposite of the hedonism that tries to escape. It's about confronting yourselves with the reality of Christ's death and celebrating that story because that is a story of lasting joy. Think about the millions of pounds spent on movie stars and sportsmen all as an attempt to to distract and find these kind of moments of transcendent joy, but they never last. They never last. They're nothing compared to the love that never runs dry, to to the love that tastes better than life that we have encountered. We have found a joy that that the world is just longing for. And we express that joy in worship. Singing, in a sense, is the paradigm way of expressing that joy, expressing thanksgiving. It's a, you know, the writer C.S. Lewis spoke about how praising completes your joy. In a sense, something you enjoy is not quite joyful, fully joyful, until you praise it. This year says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to hear a good joke and and find no one to share it with. Praise is the very consummation, the completion of the joy that we experience in Christ. This is even true biologically. Singing, scientists have found that uh, singing produces uh, dopamine and other, another experiment they found that it produces oxytocin. 
The very two happy hormones in our bodies are produced as we sing. It's no surprise that singing is often associated in cultures with the high moments and celebrations because singing is itself a joyful activity. Even lament, even a song that expresses your sadness is intended to be a pathway to joy because by expressing your grief, you are closer to happiness. You're able to express that grief that you're experiencing. Singing is in its essence a response and celebration of joy. That's why we see it in the Bible, often a response to moments of goodness. Think about Hannah singing that song as her son, uh, as, as her son is born, as her son is promised to her. Or think about uh, the, uh, the song in Isaiah 51. As it describes in Isaiah 51, how the people of God will come in after exile. And how does it describe them? What picture does it give it? They are singing. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Even James chapter 5 describes singing as a natural response to celebration, to praise. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Singing is the way that we express our celebration and joy to the living God. What I want you to see is joy is not a superfluous little extra to the Christian life. Joy is the defining hallmark of the people of God. Not by the way that we won't experience suffering. Not that we, by the way, we won't experience sadness. Well, how does Paul, uh, how does Paul put it? Sorrowful but ever rejoicing. Sorrowful but ever rejoicing. Even as we experience sorrow, we choose to rejoice. We choose to celebrate because we have a truth that transcends the the challenges of our lives, the pains, the suffering, the grief that are real. We don't deny that grief. We don't say, try and put on a perma smile. But we say, no, we have found an abiding joy that speaks louder and more permanent than any grief we might experience on this life. One writer I've read put it said, we've got it exactly the wrong way around. He says, you know, Paul says, sorrowful but ever rejoicing. We're rejoicing but ever sorrowful. In a sense that we don't, re- we don't really manifest this joy. You, you know, isn't it such a tragedy? Sometimes you come into a Christian worship setting, not grace, but other contexts where you kind of feel like there's not really any emotion in the singing. There's not an expression of joy. It's just a kind of perhaps like, it's like forced rhythm, like this is the time we sing now, and everyone's just kind of singing in a kind of the relatively monotone tone. That misses the, the great joy of the festal gathering. The, the Hebrews 12 talks about this great moment of joy that will be before the, the, the Lamb of God celebrating his victory in our lives. That is meant to be a picture of what our worship is like now. It's a tragedy when Christian worship feels unemotional or forced. But neither is worship emotionalism. Neither worship is just kind of building yourself up into some lather of joy. No, it's about wrapping yourselves up into the truths of God again. Remembering those truths that make our hearts sing. And as we do that, we join in with the joy of creation. We join in with the joy that that defines creation. In, In Job chapter 38, it describes at the moment of creation, creation is singing. Creation is singing this anthem, and actually not even just creation. In the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, God himself is singing. He's singing over his people. He's delighting over them. As we sing, we join in with that song of the Lord himself, the angels, the the creation, declaring the glory of God, and us, the people of God, singing with all of creation and the Lord. So joy is not superfluous. It's essential to who we are. Second of all, glorifying God. 
You see, in this, in this chapter, in Exodus chapter 15, the, 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 the focus moves from what God has done to who God is. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? They've moved from worshipping what he's done to worshipping who he is. They are glorifying his very essence. They are celebrating who he is. And I want to argue that this is the very, of course, this is a defining part of who we are as humanity. This is part of our very purpose to worship and glorify God. But actually, I would argue it's, it's, it's instinctive. We are drawn to glory. Think about those moments where you've seen an incredible athletic feat. That, that guy scoring from the halfway line and getting into the goal, past the goalkeeper. That moment where you watch a, a, a piano concerto and there's an incredible pianist making incredible sounds. Even some atheists will say it's in those moments that they question their atheism because they're brought to a moment of transcendence. In those moments, as you see those incredible moments of human skill or human achievement or those moments when you see an incredible vista, what, you're, you're drawn to it. There's almost an instinctive attractive attraction to that because our hearts are wired for glory. Our hearts are drawn towards glory. It says, no, the, the very essential reality of the universe, the very central reality at the heart of creation is the glorious, marvellous, majestic Lord of the universe. Why would you settle for glorifying human beings? Why would you settle for worshipping created things when the marvellous, glorious reality of the living God is there to be worshipped? That is what you hear in this passage. And yet we know that we're so often caught up in inferior substitutes. Those moments of, you see it in pop concerts, in football stadiums, there's a sense that some in those stadiums, some in those moments are actually worshipping those who they're enjoying. That they've become not just a kind of human figure that they're celebrating, but actually, I want a piece of that person. I want to be as close as possible to that person. Sign my body, you know, can I have a piece of you? That kind of thing, that kind of devotion, it speaks of a kind of worship. Or even the way we're imitating creatures. We so often need and look for examples of people to follow, Instagram influencers. Why? Because even in that, there's a sense of worship. There's a sense of finding someone to follow. Why? Because our hearts were made to imitate the living God. So we live in a world that is kind of worshipping things and people. Ultimately, he says, as a human being, you cannot live without worship. Because you must find something, you must describe something, the status of ultimate significance. Of, of ultimate value, to say, this is what I'm living for. This is the purpose of my life. Whether that be your job, your money, your success, or whatever it is, romantic relationship, we will all ascribe something that significance. So we live in a world of idolatry, of worshipping all sorts of other things. It says, no, the very central purpose of you as a humanity, and you can feel it because you're instinctively drawn towards it, is celebrating and worshipping the glorious glory and majesty of the living God. But yet when you read this passage, there's a sense of, why would you worship anything else? This is the God who miraculously opens the seas. This is the God who is implacably opposed to evil and one day will bring it to an end. Who, this is the pure and righteous hero that the world is longing for. He is the one who not only has the, the, the righteousness that can never be um, impaired, can never be kind of desecrated, but he also has the, right, the, the last word. He's the ultimate authority. He's stronger than any enemy they face. And when you see this picture of the living God who is glorious, who is majestic, who is creator of heavens and earth, who has saved his people, who loves us, who has shown us time and again all the way through the passage in the narrative of the Bible, his goodness and his, and his power, worship should become instinctive. 
Where else could we go except you, Jesus? You alone have the words of eternal life. And, and, when, and, and why does it matter with singing? It's because singing and worship are inextricably linked. Every society sings about what they consider to be sacred. In our culture today, it's probably love and sex, that, those moments of, you know, I, I found you and I found the one. That's, so many of our songs are around that great sacred moment, that great divine love ideal they found, the person who can complete me. Think about in the 19th century in Britain, what did we sing about? We sang about the nation state. Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. The na- Jerusalem. That, you know, this, this ridiculous song that talks about, uh, and did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountain green. Talks about Jesus coming into England, which is just ridiculous. But the point is that song tells you something. It tells you something. It says we sing about what we consider to be sacred. We sing about what we, what we lift up, what we venerate, what we say, this is special. Actually, what you sing about becomes sacred. And the way evidence of that, who of you watch Friends when I say smelly cat? Smelly cat of no significance, of a complete, you know, a smelly cat Phoebe sings about in Friends. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry. And yet, when I said it, all of you, it, there was a, yeah, yeah, smelly cat. <laughs> it's significant. Why? Because you've heard it sung many times. We sing about what was sacred and what we sing about becomes sacred. And so worship and singing are inextricably linked because we have found the great sacred, the great high reality of the universe. And so the only thing we can do is sing about his glory and majesty. Thirdly, boasting in the Lord's victory. We boast in the Lord's victory. The people of God can fortify themselves with the power and the strength of the Lord as they worship. Do you see the second half of this Exodus chapter 15? It's one long boast of what the Lord has done. And they're not not just looking at the victory of God as something in the past. They're saying, we remember what he's done, and this means we're we're going forward with courage, with strength. Do you see, verse 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. They're worried. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. This is one great victory. It's like, you know, the football fans who, when where their team scored, they're then chanting against the others. It's like the, the Israelites are singing, Edom's not singing anymore. Like this is a moment of kind of celebration, of victory, of saying, we are winning, the Lord is great, Canaanites have evaporated into nothing. <laughs> There's a sense of, they are, they are just chanting victoriously. They are boasting of the Lord's victorious power. That is, that is actually essential for you as you follow Christ. Actually, this, this, moment, this moment of boasting is actually a, a constant theme throughout history. We all boast, and it's often something people did before they went into battle. These Israelites, they're about to go on a big journey. They're about to face all these people who are stronger than them. What are they doing? They're singing about the Lord's victory. Isn't this still what we see time and again in history? You read Shakespeare, read Henry V, this great moment where the king is, is calling the battle, saying, people will remember this day, we will, St. Crispin's Day, and he's going back and he's saying, men will wish they were here, and those in their beds, if you've not read Shakespeare, forgive me, that's good. you have to go back and look at it, Henry V, maybe perhaps a slightly more famous analogy, <laughs> example, Churchill, What's the, you know, these, what are these words, some of you, these, you British people, you, it will, it will um, resonate with you, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. 
We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight on the fields and in the streets. We shall fight on the hill, in the hills. We shall never surrender. What was he doing there? What was he doing all the way through the war? Churchill was boasting. He was encouraging them. He was giving the British people courage to keep going. He was saying, we shall never surrender. He was telling them to be courageous and he was boasting about them, boasting about their abilities. All the way human through human history, people do this to give themselves courage. Even I used to work in sales and marketing in a startup. We had about 10 weeks before the sales cycle. What happened? What did we do? We gathered everyone in together and a rousing speech from someone to remind them, look at our conversion rates. Look at our, look at our product. Look at, our, look at all the teachers coming in to buy. It was an educational product. There was a sense to which we were, remind, we were boasting of our ability to know that we were going to hit our sales targets. Or what about you in yourself when you're feeling worried? What, what are the words you tell yourselves to fortify yourself when you're feeling fearful about that challenge you're facing? I can do this. I can do this. I've done this before. I've done this many times, and I did it well last time, so I'm going to do it again. You boast in yourself. You tell yourself that you can do it. But what is different about this? Every human being will boast. Every human being will find some reality to hold on to, to give them courage and strength. But the difference is, what is different here is the people of God, they boast in the Lord. See, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul talks about, I will boast only in the cross of Christ. The difference is everyone boasts. Everyone finds something to tell themselves that they can do it. Every, something to speak to their fears. Everybody needs something to speak to their fears because life is fragile, because you face things that are bigger than yourself, because you face the fundamental reality of uncertainty. So everyone will find something to boast in, whether it be in themselves or in some situation they find themselves, something to get them through that peril, that moment of fear. The difference is the people of God do not boast in themselves They don't boast in their national strength or their military power or their sales conversion rates. They they boast in the power of the Lord, in the cross of Christ, in that moment of victory that has been established in their lives and is working its way out in every part of their lives. What will you fortify yourself with? Who will you boast in? As I think about the challenge of being a good parent, anyone who's a parent knows it's difficult It's sometimes exhausting. It's a wonderful gift and a pleasure and a privilege, but there are many times where you might doubt your own ability to do what God has given you, to raise this child in the Lord and to help them to be everything they're meant to be, especially with the backdrop of, I'm going to mess up my kids, which is like a big theme that goes on in our culture all the time. People saying, I was messed up by my parents. What is the thing that you will tell yourself as a parent that it's going to be okay? You will tell yourself, the living God will give me what I need. The living God is at work in me to shape me and renew me and refine me and help me to be the father or mother that he's called me to be. It is the Lord's power that you will boast in at that moment. All that great fear, you know, you have. What if that thing happens? If, my, if someone I love dies or disease or financial loss, what is the thing you will tell yourself in that moment that means that you will get through it. Because that's, I think, what you're doubting. That terrible disaster, that calamity. You say, God will be enough. God will be enough. Because his love is better than life. And even if I lose X or Y, he is enough. It is knowing his power and his sufficiency. Even in the fight against sin, even at the moment where you feel defeated and destroyed by what, or that battle that you're facing, what will you tell yourself? 
You won't tell yourself, I can do this, and if I do this, and if I make this modification to my life, I can overcome this sin. You will say, the the Holy Spirit is at work in you, and Christ will give you his power and his sufficiency in order that you might conform yourself to him. And isn't that what we do when we sing? Isn't that what we do when we sing together? Later, next, after this, we'll sing, what a beautiful name. Isn't it one great boast about the Lord? Death could not hold you. I won't try and sing because my singing is awful. The death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring. The praise of your glory. For you are raised to life again. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. We are fortifying ourselves. We are remembering that we worship a Lord who reigns over heaven and earth and who has defeated the power of sin in our lives, who has overcome death. And it is that confidence, that courage that we need to inspire ourselves with every Sunday. That's why worship is multidirectional. We are singing to God, but we are also singing to each other. We are speaking the truth of God so that we each hear it. So, Colossians 3, the truth of God might dwell, Christ himself might dwell in our hearts as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are, as we sing together, we fortify ourselves. This is not just a celebration of who God is. We are strengthening one another by singing these truths. How, if you struggle with condemnation, if you, I, I was a time in my life, I really struggled with condemnation in a battle against sin. And I used to just put on Matt Redman in the morning, your, uh, uh, his blood speaks a better word. His blood speaks a better word. I, I just let Matt sing that truth to me in the morning. I would try and sing it with him. <laughs> There's a sense in which that truth speaks to our hearts. Let's we fortify ourselves. Finally, we unify ourselves in a common story. What you've got to see in this passage in the book of Exodus, in this chapter 15, is the people of God are singing the story of what God has done. And you see it through the song. In verse 10, you blew them with your, with your wind. The sea covered them. They're talking about his victory in the past. Then he goes on, verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Well, he's speaking about the future, isn't he there? They're speaking about the future. He's guiding them to your holy abode, speaking about the promised land. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. This is the great history of the people of God. He's brought them out of death. He's brought them, he's conquered and defeated the enemies that sought to destroy them, and he's bringing them on the way, and they are singing, we're on the way to the promised land. They are singing their song. So many of our songs communicate a cultural narrative, communicate a story. I mentioned it earlier, but football, uh, football's coming home. So I'm such an obvious not British football fan. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's this story, it's the cultural narrative of great loss and, uh, you know, 30 years of pain and then looking forward to a victory. It's a story that any British football fan, except me apparently, can, can unite behind and say, this is our story. We sing, and because it unites us together. That is the power of singing. Any of you have been in a, a, a concert or a, a, football, a football stadium? I've been in a few, and I don't even really follow football. And, I, and there's some electric power in that moment when we all hear our voices united together. Think about the very act of singing. We're harmoni- if you can sing, we're harmonizing our voices together to the same, not all of us, but, but we're singing to the same note. We're singing the same words. They are uniting us together. National anthems. Even the, the psychologists have found social bonding and community choirs, they encourage them because there's some sense of, of, of pet benefit to your own psychology by singing. Actually, music is not fundamentally an individualistic thing. Only in the last 40 years have you even been able to consume music individually. Before the, the Walkman and the headphones, music was always something you did together. Music is inherently a communal act. 
But we are not people who just unite for the sake of it. We do a community choir because we know it's good for our mental health. It's not that we unite over some great hedonistic moment of, of celebrating some concert. No, we unite because we have the great story that unites us together. So our singing is a celebration of the unity that we already have in Christ. There's a sense of paradox in this story. It's first of all a declaration of personal allegiance, of saying, this is my God, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. There's individual allegiance, but there's also communal singing, a song together that unites us. Brothers and sisters, we have the better story. We have the, we have the unity already in Christ that he's united us together. So as we sing, we declare that reality together, that we are one body, that we are one people, and that we have been united by a better story, the, the story of being brought out of death into eternal life and on the way to the promised land with Christ for eternity as he comes back to judge the living and the dead and establish his kingdom on this earth. That story is a better story. We have something that unites us that's better and we have a better unity that transcends any other divisions, racial divisions, ethnic divisions, class divisions. We, have, we are one body and that is something we celebrate as we sing. So what I want you to see really in all of this, we have everything that the world is longing for when they sing. We have a, a, a world that longs to celebrate, to find transcendent joy. We have the joy that is literally transcendent, the joy that is going to be there in the festival gathering that bleeds into our time together as we experience the work of the Holy Spirit. We're meeting with the living God. We have the transcendent joy that, that the people outside are longing for. We have a world that intuitively glorifies, that, lo- that is drawn towards glory. We found the glorious King. We found the reason why we are drawn to glory, the glory of God himself. We have a world that boasts in its talents and abilities but tries and denies the fragility of life. We have the answer to our weakness, the strength of the Lord, and we can boast about it. And we have a world that longs for unity. And we have found the one, the living God who unified us, who broke down the dividing wall of hostility and has formed us into one people. We have everything the world's looking for. So let's sing. Let's sing and celebrate. Let's sing and worship. Let's sing and manifest and display this great reality. Will you stand? The guys are going to lead us in a time of singing. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for this privilege of being able to sing. We want to thank you for this glorious truth that we have been united together, that we can celebrate your majesty and your glory. We can rejoice at what you have done for us, at your great victory. Help us now as a people of God to sing and celebrate. Help us now to experience your joy. Help us now to rejoice and lift you up high and glorify you as the Lord of Lords. Amen.